I had a lot of fun with this title of the sermon. We've had some interesting sermons this uh, month and a half. I, I've really uh, broached on some taboo subjects, so to speak, starting from, you know, what married couples do in bed, to talking about divorce, to talking about singleness, to talking about smaller issues and what we do with smaller issues like alcohol, gambling, modesty, and all that sort of stuff. And I've stepped on some toes, and you haven't kicked me out yet. So we'll see what happens after this sermon. (laughs) Uh, uh, We're getting into a sermon that the ordinary pastor does not preach on. This is a sermon that most pastors, when it comes up, they get someone else to come and preach on it. Because if the pastor himself preaches on it, uh, sometimes they've been known to be fired. Other times they've been known to have some major grudges held against him. Uh, but I am an idiot, so I'm preaching on this passage. Like I said, I'm talking about ministerial finance. Ministerial finance. Ministerial finance. When you hear about the phrase ministerial finance, what comes to your mind? Money. Thank you. Yes. Money? Anything else? The handling of money. Thank you. Within the ministry. Thank you, money within the ministry. Well done. She's a teacher. (laughs) Anything else? Anyone else want to say what comes to your mind when you think of ministerial finance or the handling of money by ministers? Fighting. Yes. Thank you, Jen. Fighting. What else comes to your mind? Oh, no, you got to talk about this again. Thank you. Oh, this is getting good. This is getting good. Keep it up. Anyone else want to share? Anyone else want to share? No? John? Tithes? Yes? Tithes and offerings very much tied into this? Good, good. Anyone else? I've had conversations with people about ministerial finance. I don't want to cut anyone off. Anyone want to, like, your burning desire says, if he waited one more second, I would say something. Anyone want? No? Okay. I've had some conversations with people about ministerial con- uh, and and they kind of, come back to the concept of, you know, the pastor's working for God. Why should he get so much money? And then people throw off, like, illustrations like televangelists with their fancy cars and private jets, and they say, oh my goodness, those guys, I tell you. Uh, and, and, they, and they kind of translate that feeling to their own pastor's paycheck sometimes. Ministerial finance. Well, before we dive into this, let us read the text. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 18. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 18. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, and are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Or do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. 
If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these things, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you'll do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Ministerial finance. It's a very convoluted topic. But before we dive in, will you pray with me? Oh, Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is and who was and who is forevermore, the one who declared your love for us and proved it by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die that we might be saved and have a personal relationship with you for all of eternity. It is truly an honor to worship you and to serve you, to lift you high because you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. It is an honor to come to your word and study it and figure out how best to live this Christian life that others might see who you are through us. As we study this passage, Father, I ask that you, you would allow us to understand it, allow us to apply it. And Father, as I am up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. We're going to take this passage in two weeks. The first week here, we're talking about the rights of the minister of the gospel. Next week, we're going to talk about the privilege of a minister of the gospel. This week, the rights of the minister of the gospel. Next week is the privilege. This week is the controversial sermon. Next week is the happy, everyone's joyful sermon. So if you get disgruntled this week, just forget it and come back next week. Okay. As I speak, please don't think that I'm saying anything to complain about Calvary Bible Church. That is not my intent. My intent is to explain this passage of Scripture and speak on generalized ideas that have become rooted into the American church, though not necessarily this one. So, this week, the rights of a minister of the gospel. The minister, of the, the minister has a right to receive resources. That is the first big point right there. I said it. The minister has a right to receive resources. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 4 to 6, he says, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? A minister has the right to receive resources for the work that he is doing in a church. Paul explains this right using four things. He talks about experience, he talks about Old Testament law, he talks about the temple system, then he talks about Jesus' teachings. So, what is his explanation? He talks about experience first. No one in this world is expected to work without pay. If you do, you are a slave. And But even slave masters give their slaves something in order to keep them going. As I was preparing the sermon, I realized that I'm on the school board for no pay. 
so I guess I'm a slave. Um, but even then, they try to make it worth my while. They gave us cookies and brownies, and my theory is if anyone gives me cookies and brownies, I will do anything. <laughs> now I've given you too much knowledge. Um, but places like Omaha, when they, hire, they bring a school board on, uh, they actually pay their school board something because of the, the, a lot of work that's being done. So, but Paul, in this passage, he talks about soldiers. He says soldiers are expected, not expected to equip themselves when to the end of the service. Uh, army, army would be empty if that were the case here. If we said, hey, yeah, come on in, fight for us, but you got to supply everything and we're not going to give you anything. It is normal understanding that when you ask someone to go into harm's way, especially on the front lines, you will give them something, some sort of reward or recompense, something to help them. Paul also talks about agricultural work. Someone who tends a vine expects to get grapes off of it, he says. Someone who tends a flock expects to get milk or meat from it. Um, We go through the hardships of taking care of something, plants, animals, in order to receive something back. Yes? If we don't, we say something's wrong. You say, oh, but, you know, I've got my little dog Fluffy. Fluffy doesn't give me anything, it's just my companion. I say, even then, the dog's giving you something back. Because if Fluffy bit you every time you tried to pet it, Fluffy wouldn't be around. Paul equates ministry with agriculture and war. A ministry, minister is on the front lines of the spiritual battle every day in Paul's mind. He says that just as a soldier should not fight for, at his own expense, a minister shouldn't because of the difficulty that he faces every day of his life. A minister is painstakingly nurturing life from those who are spiritually dead, planting seeds, watering, fertilizing in people's lives, caring, ministering, leading. And therefore, since he's doing agricultural work, he should expect some sort of benefit from that work back. That is logical, Paul is saying. Interesting enough, though, we live in a society that proves these truths over and over and over again. So many churches go against these logical understandings and expect their minister to serve without benefit or with a very meager amount of it. They say, God is his pay. They say, oh, but he's laying up for himself treasures in heaven. And the church makes sure that all of his treasures are in heaven and nothing on earth. Why do so many churches have this mindset? We're going to come back to that question. Paul goes on from experience, and he talks about the Old Testament law. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 to 11, he says, Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? In this passage, Paul's quoting the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, that says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. After grain was cut at this time, put into sheaves, hauled to the barn, before it went to the barn, it went by way of the threshing floor. And they would have oxen, uh, on a threshing floor, there as you see, in a circle, going around and around, trampling on the wheat or any other grain that's there, breaking the wheat off of the straw, breaking the kernels out, and then they, you see them tossing the straw up so the grain would fall down, and they throw the straw off, and they keep going until all the grain was on the f- ground and the straw was out. 
it was normal practice that you would allow your oxen to eat while it was threshing the grain. This would allow the ox to work harder, allow the ox to stay healthier. That was normal practice, except if you're borrowing someone else's ox. Because borrowing someone else's ox, you're, you're paying for that ox already. And now someone else's ox is walking around your grain and is wanting to eat from your grain that you're already paying for, the ox. So it's like stealing from you in your, in your mind. It's interesting, note the context out of Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. The context is when people have a dispute, they're going to take it to court. Guilty person deserves to be beaten. Uh, the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. Uh, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. If brothers living together, one of them dies, widow must not marry outside the family. So that went really fast. But you got the context. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain is in the context of justice in society, not compassion to the ox. The context is justice in society. So Paul, when he's talking about he's not talking about, hey, we must have compassion on the ox, therefore let's have compassion on the minister. He's saying, no, we must treat this ox with justice. We must treat our neighbor with justice so that when we return the ox back to our neighbor, the ox is healthy, the ox is in good, is healthy. What am I trying to say? You feed your ox, you make it healthy, so it goes back. It's good. Okay, you got the point. All right, we're fine. The verse isn't about compassion. The verse is about justice. We're not to misuse something that is owned by someone else for our own benefit, except when it comes to pastors. No, Paul says that nothing, including pastors, are to be misused because pastors are not owned by the church. The pastor is Jesus' under-shepherd. And one day the church will have to return that pastor back to Jesus. And has that ox been kept well with justice? Why are serving churches wanting to cheat their pastors then? We'll come back to that. From the experience to the law, Paul turns to the temple system. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, Paul says, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar. The Jews are already practicing what Paul was preaching. The temple priests uh, did not work for the Israelites. They worked for God. They were to mediate a relationship between God and the people, and they were to show the Israelites who God was every day by their actions. The life of the priest was wrapped up in the ministry of the God. In the ministry of God, they were not just supposed to be distracted to provide for themselves. God provided a way that the priests would be provided for. Deuteronomy 18.1 says the Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. The people of Israel brought gifts, they brought tithes, they brought offerings. And they were, gave it to God, and God said, I'm giving it to the priests so that the priests could use this for the upkeep of the temple and for the livelihood of themselves so they could focus on the work of God instead of on everything else. So why then do so many churches not want to do that? We will come back to that. Experience, Old Testament law, temple system. Finally, Paul brings out the big guns. He talks about Jesus' teaching in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14. He says, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Jesus' teaching. Interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about Old Testament law and Jesus' teaching. 
Paul also talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. He says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not muzzle an ox, Old Testament. Worker deserves his wages, Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is when Jesus is commissioning 72 of his disciples to go out as an advanced party and to visit all of the towns that Jesus is going to go to. And as he is telling them of their task as they go to these towns as his advanced party, he tells them in Luke chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, he says, When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Jesus expected his disciples, because they were ministering under him, to provide resources so they could focus on their task, ministering under him. But as we know, that only applied to Jesus' disciples, right? No. Paul says Jesus' teaching applies to all ministers of the gospel. So then, the big question, why do so many churches not want to pay their pastors? Great question. Thank you for asking it. We will finally answer it. Let's talk about that. Paul gave an explanation, but there is an objection to his explanation. He says, okay, he doesn't say, but so many people say, okay, pastor, you're telling me the minister has a right to receive resources. How much pay are we talking about? That's what it always comes down to. How much pay are we talking about? That's why so many churches are so leery about this discussion. They are stuck in the concept of pay. In their minds, the pastor is working for the church. He is hired by the church to perform a task for the church and therefore is paid to accomplish that task by the church. But if that is true, how can someone put a price tag on what a pastor does? What does a pastor do? Well, Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, the work of the pastor. He says, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What does a pastor do? Well, a pastor equips the people of God for the service of God. That's what he does. But let's, let's detail that out. What does it mean to equip the people of God? Well, he equips them by preaching. He equips them by teaching. He equips them by counseling. He casts vision. He leads. He performs sacraments. He officiates weddings. And he does funerals. He leads Bible studies. He equips other people to lead Bible studies. He maintains a building. He updates technology. And on and on and on and on and on and on. We could go of all the things that a pastor does every single day. And how can we do it, put a price tag on the work of a pastor? It's completely subjective. We could look at the secular world. But there is no correlation between the office of a pastor and the work of anyone else in a community. The pay is completely subjective to the worth that the congregation places on the duties of its pastor. 
but we can't do that. Think about how much, just trying to make a correlation. Think about how much we're willing to pay someone who directs the teaching and education of our children. Think about superintendents and principals. We place so much weight on there. How, what's the priority that we're willing to place on someone who leads our spiritual education? Think of how much worth we place on someone who helps our physical health, like doctors and dentists. Are we willing to place the same priority on someone who looks out for our spiritual health? We could keep going, trying to make this correlation between the secular world and the ministry, their tasks and responsibilities, and the pastor's tasks and responsibilities, but we're not gonna do that because it is fruitless. It's all subjective. One person will say that a pastor's worth this much, and the next person will disagree because as they look in secular society, they have different weights and measures for how those people do it. And so we have this huge, nettled, knotted thing that we just can't unravel. The problem is we're stuck in this concept of pay. Money for a task completed. But is that what it's supposed to be? let's talk about the realization that churches should have on the subject. I like what Don Carson says. Don Carson says the church does not pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. Regardless of what the IRS says, a church does not pay the pastor. It merely gives the pastor resources to live on. Think about the person who borrows that ox to thresh his grain. He's not paying that ox. He pays the person who owns the ox. And he's allowing that ox to eat from this grain so that he can keep working and so that the ox can be returned back to its master in good health, in good condition. Think about the temple priests. They're not paid by Israel. They're not. Nowhere in the Old Testament law does it say the Israelites are bringing the priests a paycheck. They're merely supplied resources as the people of Israel bring their offerings to God and so they can focus on the work that God has called them to do. They're not paid by the priests. They're paid by God. A pastor is provided resources to live on. So we don't have the discussion then of how much is a pastor worth because no one can answer that. The discussion then is how much does a pastor need to live on? That's what it boils down to. So, the question changes. If that is the case, it changes on the area that the pastor's in and the circumstances of the pastor. A pastor in Africa needs different resources than a pastor living in Manhattan. Would we agree on that? We can't begrudge some pastor's pay paychecks, not to use that term, but there you go. Um, resources given to him in Manhattan because of the cost of living that's there, but we better not pay the pastor in Africa that same amount of resources because he doesn't need it. Think about the pastor who's single as opposed to the pastor who has 10 kids. They need two different amounts of resources. We can't begrudge the pastor who has 10 kids the amount of resources because he's got to feed those kids, but we better not pay the pastor who's single that same amount because he doesn't need that much. What does that look like, though? Those are, those are general theories. What does that look like? What does it look like for you? 
What does it look like for you if you were in this position to not have to worry about finances so that you could focus on the work that God has called you to do? And then turn that around. What does it look like then to return your pastor back to God having been a good steward of him? What does that look like? Well, let's flesh that out. Let's talk about finances. The goal of a church is to divide financial resources so that the pastor can focus on the work of ministry. What does that entail? Well, he must have enough finances to stay in an adequate house and not be stressed about that house being taken away from him. He doesn't have to live in a mansion, but it should be adequate. He must have enough finances to feed his family and himself and not be worried about where the next meal is going to come from. He must be able to clothe his family and his kids aren't walking around in rags because that's not a good, it's not a good, what is that? Example. Thank you. Not a good example. It's not a good saying, hey, this is, this is what we believe the gospel is. Look at our pastor's kids. Paul writes to Timothy. This hits me sometimes. He says, 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A pastor should never be put in a position where he's worried that he's considered as someone who has denied the faith because he has had to choose between ministry and providing for his family. But unfortunately, so many churches put their pastor in this spot that they're worse than an unbeliever. These are the essential things. Home, food, clothing. But there are other things financially we could talk about, things that are expected in today's society. A church should provide health insurance for their pastor. Not being on a group plan, this can get expensive. There's a lot of cheap plans out there, but so many people in the church would not be on that cheap plan. So why would they force their pastor to be on it? That is called muzzling the ox. Think about retirement. There will be a time when a pastor cannot perform the ministry tasks that he has currently been able to perform. So what does it mean to take care of him so that he's not worried about that day coming up? There's so many considerations when a pastor puts together a resource package, when a church puts together a resource package for their pastor. Some of these uh, considerations are based upon just normal life today, but some of it are based on scriptural qualifications of a pastor. Think about what Paul exhorts Titus. He says in Titus 1.6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are, are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. What does that look like practically, financially, for a pastor? Well, talk about the wife. Does the pastor have resources to hire a babysitter so that he can pursue a relationship with his wife? Or don't they have enough so they can never spend time together and their marriage falls apart? Speaking of the wife, does she have to work? Oh, there's the babysitting. There we go. Uh, does she have to work because the church isn't willing to pay the pastor more? Studies show that children who have a mom who stays home with them are, have less behavioral issues. This is nothing against moms who have had to work in the past. I'm not talking about that. But the, the studies show this, that children have less behavioral issues when the mother doesn't work. So are we increasing the chances that a pastor will have wild and disobedient children by saying, oh, we don't have to pay him as much because his wife can work? Paul continues on in 1 Timothy, Titus 1, verse 8. He says, this pastor, he must be hospitable, 
one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. A pastor is called to be hospitable by God. That is one of his qualifications. That means he has to be able to invite people over. Needs to, that's normally for meals, which means more food, more energy usage, and therefore more money. A church needs to be able to provide resources so that his, the pastor can do this, that he can be hospitable, that is, he is called to be. Too often, churches chain their pastors so they cannot meet their God-given responsibilities. And because they don't have enough finances, they actually disqualify themselves for ministry. Resources, there you go. I need to catch up on myself. Hospitality. We could talk about finances involved in visitation, like gas, wear and tear on vehicles, meal costs for counseling. All these are part of what the pastor foots every day out of his own salary. But the church is expecting him to do that. Therefore, the church should make sure he can do that. There are a lot of things we can talk about finances, but we're going to stop talking about finances because no one wants to talk about finances. We're going to talk about emotions next. The church provides resources so that the pastor is able to serve freely, financially, but also emotionally. Now, I lied. I said I was going to talk, stop talking about finances, but I got to talk about finances just a little bit more because that plays into the emotional stuff. Unfortunately, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Emotional support. The wife of the pastor plays a huge emotional support to that pastor. He, she brings emotional health. Too often, many pastor's wives, as I said, are forced to work because the church will not pay their pastor more. So to be able to provide for the family, the wife goes. Instead of ministering to the husband, they're stuck at work. And the pastor's emotional state suffers, not to mention the kids again, because of lack of finances. Pastor needs fellowship with his wife. Pastor needs fellowship with like-minded ministers. That means time and finances. Time away from ministry, money to travel to those like-minded pastors. I, I have a group of Berean pastors that I meet with, we are not a Berean church, but I meet with a group of Berean pastors because they are the most similar to me theologically. Uh, and there's about 12, 14 of us that meet once a month, and we gather at each other's churches, and we spend some time talking about life, talking about our families, talking about ministry. We hold each other accountable to make sure we're staying true to good theology, to make sure we're loving our families well and being active in ministry. And we pray for each other. I really appreciate that time. Um, but the group of pastors, because there's not a lot of good churches in this, in this area, uh, the radius we drive is two and a half hours every time. Uh, and I'm on the extreme end of that. So every month, I travel the minimum of two hours to meet with these pastors sometime, one way. Sometimes I travel four hours one way to meet with these pastors. It takes time. It takes money. But I need it for my emotional health. A pastor also needs rest. I appreciate the Calvary Bible Church gives me time off every year. You give me one week for a pastoral co a conference that I take my family to, and then you give me three additional weeks uh, for, as some people say, vacation. I like the term holiday because uh, it's fun, but it's also good theology there. My family gets tired, just as I do. I get emotionally and spiritually tired, and those times are necessary. My family gets tired as I can continually walk that tightrope balance of caring for my family and doing ministry. And these times together are necessary. So thank you for what you do. It is great, and churches need to do more of that. 
According to studies, most pastors, even those who take regular vacations and holidays, they burn out every seven or eight years. That's the statistic and it's proven over and over and over and over again. Many churches will actually give their pastor a three to six month sabbatical every seven years. Um, This is tied to the Old Testament agricultural calendar. God told the farmers, said, hey, every seven years, don't plant anything. Let your fields rest. And all the agricultural people today are like, ah, I can't do that. God told the Israelites, do it. And so, so many churches say, hey, if God told the Israelites to do that, maybe we should do that for our pastor too. Give them an extended time of rest to rejuvenate. And so many pastors I've talked to who have done this, after those even three months, come back so refreshed and able to take on another seven years. There are a lot of other things we could talk about in terms of providing resources. And if you want to talk about them, if something's spurred in your head of like, oh, how can I support my pastor? How can I have resources? Is this good? Or is that? Let me know. We'll talk about it. Minister has a right to receive resources, and I'm running out of time. From those to whom he ministers, Paul is clear in this passage in 1 Timothy, Jesus is clear in the New Testament, temple system, all this says that the people who minister, who the pastor ministers to is supposed to bring those resources to him. That's the biblical teaching. If the church is not providing adequate resources for their pastor, they are going against Jesus' commands, and they're going against clear scriptural principles. There are some churches, due to their size, due to their financial resources, their economic condition, they cannot fully support their pastor. But they're still required to give what they can. They're not just to say, sorry, pastor. I think about the widow with her two pennies bringing it to the temple. It's all she had, and she gave it all. There are a lot of two-penny churches out there but they're required to say, this is all I have, take it. Because we, we, we want to be a good steward of the gift that God has given to us. And then the pastor goes and finds resources elsewhere. Paul, when he was ministering to Corinth, did not get any resources from Corinth. Instead, the churches of Thessalonica and Philippi supported him. And there were times he took a part-time gig as a tent maker. But those were not the norm. The norm was Paul went to different churches and that church supported him. Corinth was not the norm. Calvary Bible Church has been one of those two-penny churches. I came here because you could not afford a pastor. The goal for my six years that I've been here, and as long as God leaves me, hopefully until the day I die, the goal is to continue to grow this church physically and spiritually so that you can adequately support a pastor yourself, so that you can fulfill the requirement that God has given to be a good steward of his servant. Okay. If this sermon has stirred up anything from anyone, whether you're here or elsewhere and you're watching online and throwing tomatoes at the t- screen, let me know. I'd love to talk, continue to do some Bible study with you on what it means of uh, ministerial finances. Today we've discussed the rights of the minister of the gospel, that he has a right to receive resources from those to whom he ministers. Next week we're going to talk about the privilege of the minister of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Father, Thank you for giving us your word and showing us what it means to love you and live in a way that shows our love for you. Continue to teach us how to support one another as we live this life that you've called us to live. Continue to push us and guide us. And Father, I ask that Calvary Bible Church and the way we act with each other 
in the way we interact in the community would show beyond a shadow of a doubt that your gospel is true and that you are the most important thing to all of us. Thanks, Father. Amen.